This is an ABC podcast. Resorts, homes and a newly built hospital have been washed away. I'm just holding on for their life here. This isn't fun. Pacific prepared. Pacific prepared. Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. Save what for dream. You must ready. Helping your community. Helping your family. Helping you. Pacific prepared. Pacific prepared. Pacific prepared. Hi, I'm Fred Hooper, based in Australia. And I'm Josiah Nanunga, based in Fiji, and this is Pacific Prepared. On today's show... Renewable energy. Tonga is hoping that its latest plans mean that it can make even more of its own power. More on that soon. Also, when you hear the word aid, you might you know, be imagining huge pallets of water or other essential items. This is just part of it. We find out what else it looks like on the ground. And World Radio Day is just around the corner. So how important is radio in the Pacific, especially after a disaster? We'll hear an example of when it was changing lives. This is Pacific Prepared. It's a show all about natural disasters, climate change and traditional knowledge and how things are all connected. And you'll hear that through stories from right across the Pacific. Each week we work with local reporters. They're on the ground letting us know what's happening in this space and what people want to hear about. Okay, let's go. This is Pacific Prepared. I'm just holding on for dear life here. For women, it's always safety first. They are the first responder. You're listening to Pacific Prepared. Renewable energy. Lots of countries are focused. Lots of countries are focused on it. And the Pacific is no different, really. So what is it? We're talking about wind turbines, solar panels. They're probably the big ones. But Tonga is also using another type. Joe, what are they doing? Well, Fred, you know, Tonga is currently using biogas. You know, it's basically using waste to make energy, obviously. It could be either food scraps, wastewater, animal waste, you know, just to create gas for domestic use. But also in some cases, not only for Tonga, but other Pacific Islands, commercial use. Let's find out a little bit more with our Pacific Prepared reporter, Anasiu Falakano, and she's got this story. Tonga has commenced using biogas energy from wild grass, livestock feed and manure. The Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Forestry officially opened their biogas testing laboratory last week. The lab is located at the Ministry of Agriculture's headquarters in Maofanga and a special unit has been assigned to work at the lab. The chairman of the Tonga Board of Utilities, Tapu Banove, says the Renewable and Sustainable Energy Initiative is to assist Tonga reach its target of using more renewable energy and to reduce the heavy reliance on fuel-based energy. The project is called Tonga Malo and Moho and was piloted back in 2018 with an economic circular approach to achieve economic resilience through energy. Today marks a significant milestone in our journey towards a sustainable future for renewable energy in Tonga. As we launch our first biomass pilot project, we're not just inaugurating a facility, we're pioneering a vision. 
And that vision is encapsulated in the theme from your ministry, Tonga Malu Momo, our kingdom's energy and food security, our people's prosperity. Tonga Power is pushing for energy that is safe, reliable, affordable, and renewable. We're not just talking about energy. This project, we're talking about a closed-loop, zero-way system that creates energy, food, feed, and fertilizer. Badova adds, if the biogas program is successful, it will help Tonga, especially in terms of electricity consumption. The detailed engineering study for this 500-kilowatt proof-of-concept biogas plant is a critical step. The biogas lab here in Tonga will give us real data ensuring that our investment decisions are based on solid empirical evidence. Today is critical in moving our national aspirations forward towards a vision of Tonga Malumomoku Minister, our kingdom's energy and food security. Meanwhile, the managing director of FWE Energy, Pia Heida, said that it has been a dream come true to see small countries like Tonga adopt the biogas energy as it will be much easier in terms of resources. To establish a technology that would enable far remote decentralized areas and islands to easily install biogas digesters and to help those locations to become energy independent and self-sustaining in an ecological, friendly manner. I developed the technology and gave the child a name, Biogas Tiger. Today I'm proud and honored to stand in front of, of you and to be part of a great project which has been commenced to lead the proud kingdom of Tonga in exactly this very energy-independent, sustainable direction. Tong has used wind and solar renewable energy for quite some time and the government believes that the introduction of biogas will benefit the country. Tonga's target is to reach 50% of renewable energy by the year 2025 and 70% by 2030. There's hope that by the year 2035, Tonga's renewable energy will reach 100%. Currently, Tonga's renewable energy is at 27%. Thanks to Pacific Prepared reporter Anisio Falekono for that story. We need to be prepared for the future. Helping you stay safe. We have built a seawall two times, but it did no good. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. We hear a lot about aid to the Pacific. There's a lot of words that go with that, you know, package, security, budgets, investments, delivery, which doesn't really tell us much about what aid really is. Yeah, we definitely hear a lot of those words associated with aid. And that's the exact question that I had as well, Joe. The Australian Red Cross has got some funding for impacts that they're expecting from El Nino, the weather pattern. 
So I wanted to find out exactly what that looks like on the ground. What are, what are people, you know, getting for that aid on the ground? Absolutely, things do get shipped in. So, I mean, a critical step around preparedness is and for Red Cross in the Pacific is having pre-positioned relief items. Um, but that is just one element of preparedness and response. Um, yes, and my name's Claire Hallis and I uh, work for the Australian Red Cross as the Senior Manager for the Pacific. For someone who's listening to this who's sort of well outside that sort of government and non-government space, when we talk about funding on this kind of scale, what does it actually look like on the ground in any particular country? Like what sort of things are we talking about? This is really important funding, actually. So uh, what this funding in particular means um, on the ground is that because it is uh, an investment in from the Australian government through Australian Red Cross, but an investment in um, preparedness and proactively addressing the impacts of El Nino events in the Pacific region and Timor-Leste, uh, it means that there are resources available, and in this case to uh, Pacific Red Cross national societies, to do the work that they are best placed to do, which is to work with communities to ensure that they have the knowledge, the skills and the resources to both prepare for and act early when they hear about an event um, in the Pacific uh, affecting their, their country potentially and um, that that ultimately means that they are ready to um, uh, respond. I, yeah. I think maybe when people hear that aid has been given to a particular country or, or anywhere really that aid has been offered, they might think of, um, I guess, big packs of, of something, whatever it is, sort of like pallets of, of things, like whether it's water or whether it's essentials going into a country. It, that's not necessarily always the case, is it? So you, you, you were talking there about sort of, I guess, preparedness um, of things that are happening on the ground, I guess, uh, proactive things that you might be doing. So what else happens around that sort of funding other than, yeah. yes, obviously things probably do get shipped in as well, but what else happens around that though? Yeah, yeah, totally. So absolutely things do get shipped in. So, I mean, a critical step around preparedness is and for Red Cross in the Pacific is having pre-positioned relief items. Um, but that is just one element of preparedness and response. Um, and so the other really important components are um, that this funding enables training of specialists um, at different levels, so from a national level to a provincial level and a community level. So there's emerg it, it enables emergent basically training of emergency response teams with critical skills to be able to be first responders in times of disasters. And in the Red Cross, uh, we have, it's a volunteer-driven um, organisation um, globally, and uh, that means that there are volunteers in most communities across the Pacific ready, equipped with the knowledge and skills to respond, um, be the first responder in times of disasters. So there's that component, but it also enables those teams, those those special specialised um, teams to then go out to communities and also so if a, a warning has an early warning has been disseminated and a forecast of a let's say a cyclone they're able to go out into communities and to do training and dissemination of messages to share that that early warning that forecast of that uh, potential hazard coming through and then to work with communities to take actions like tying down roofs moving livestock up to higher ground, potentially evacuating to evacuation centres, 
Um, it also enables stimulation exercises, so not just um, when when an alert has been received, but ahead of time to practice those things so that it becomes a bit like muscle memory for people. Um, and I guess that a really good example of those things is um, in Vanuatu where there's been a significant um, growth in knowledge and community awareness around what to do in cyclones. So if we compare TCPAM, Tropical Cyclone PAM in 2015, to the the cyclones that hit the country last year, so there were three, um, and there is there's been you know there were no lives lost last year through the three cyclones that hit the country in comparison to Tropical Cyclone Pam, and the the communities that we've been able to speak to um, following those events talk about the things that they've learned through engagement with the Vanuatu Red Cross um, and how that has helped them to know what to do when they hear about a cyclone coming or a drought or potential flooding. Now, obviously, you know, we're talking about the Pacific, which is a huge region with lots of different countries and different countries comes different cultures and different nuances. How does the Red Cross sort of work in with locals to make sure that you're delivering something that's useful and appropriate and, I guess, um, acknowledging traditional knowledge that exists in those countries too? Yeah, absolutely. I think the Red Cross is a really good example of um, being locally led. So um, we, I mean, as Australian Red Cross, we work with local Red Cross in the Pacific. So, um, and, and the Red Cross is a local organisation. Um, they're made up of, I guess, to, to talk to what I said previously about volunteers, you know, it is the, the organisation is made up of people that are volunteers that are members of their communities and as a whole, um, you know, that naturally they are linking in with the local um, structures in the community and listening to traditional knowledge around what has worked in the past, listening to um, in terms of response, but also around forecasts and changes in the in the environment and the climate, um, and then feeding that back into um, the organisation's uh, work. Uh, and and that, that also we collect that and that, that comes into um, that knowledge and understanding of the local context um, we adapt. So, you know, there are obviously many different things we can draw on and lessons from globally, um, but, uh, and, and standards that the humanitarian system abide by, but that all needs to be adapted. So trainings need to be adapted. Communication needs to be adapted. We need to be using local languages and, um, and we do all of that, um, to ensure that, you know, the right messages are getting to the right people. Um, but also that they are feeding into what the Red Cross work does and to ensure that it actually has the impact, the, the, the desired impact. What are some of the challenges around planning for something that sort of might never happen? Challenges around planning? Yeah, I think, well, one of, I think this particular fund, so so Australian Red Cross has received um, a really critical investment of $2 million from the Australian government. And this is unique um, in that it is, uh, often with planning, it's difficult for planning for a response or events that might happen um, is that the traditionally resourcing has come at the response moment. So when the hazard has impacted 
the particular country and the responses required. Whereas what's unique about this is that um, one of the challenges that we, we've had in the past is not having access to um, resources in to be able to act on a forecast of an event that may happen um, before it happens. And to take that, that risk, I guess, of investment in preparedness, whether or not it actually happens, because, you know, they are forecasts, they're predictions, and there's no guarantee, um, but it's a no-regret situation. Um, and we know that the Pacific is one of the most disaster-prone regions in the, in the world, and uh, that any preparedness, you know, it, it makes sense to prepare and take some early actions ahead of a forecast and if that event does not happen, those actions are going to set up that country, that particular organisation, so the Red Cross in this case, for the next event that is is unfortunately inevitable. Um, so I guess access to resources. Um, and then there is, you know, when I guess ensuring that communities understand that, uh, you know, these are forecasts, they might, these, these events might not eventuate, but being clear about that message around preparedness and that, you know, it is much better to act ahead of an, a potential event and the best outcome is that nothing happens. Now, we're talking about funding that's directly linked to El Nino, obviously. What, what sort of things are you sort of anticipating or have you projected that might come about as a result of El Nino? El Nino typically increases the frequency and severity of cyclones um, and brings about drought conditions, so with, which all have potential devastating impacts on local communities. So if we're looking at, so the forecast suggests that this cyclone season in the Pacific will be driven by a strong El Nino event. So we're, look, we're looking at potentially five to seven severe tropical cyclones um, and some drought conditions. And if we look back to the event in 2015 and 2016, what that meant, those two things, so the increased severity of cyclones and drought conditions was that that resulted in um, scarcity of water available, agricultural losses, um, drought conditions and, and cyclones. Well, great insight from Claire Hallis. She's currently the Senior Manager for the Pacific with uh, Australia Red Cross. Disaster is part of our life, and recovering is also part of our life. As you see, they're smiling despite the devastation. That's how we are. You are listening to Pacific Prepare. So, Joe, um, this is something that we both know a little bit about, and that's radio. Have you had any experience with emergency broadcasting? Absolutely, Fred. Well, from my experience and uh, point of view or perspective, I would say that radio, radio is the only medium or mode that, uh, you know, people can rely on, uh, especially in times of disaster. Eh? Uh, well, we can say that uh, now information, you know, weather updates, uh, disaster warnings uh, can be accessed online, but that became prominent in recent years. Eh? But radio has been there for quite some time. Firstly, I built my network with the with the weatherman here in Fiji. So before I go uh, during to start off with my shift, I will actually, I'll, I'll, I'll make it my business to call him or her, trying to, I've managed to contact the, the weatherman every hour, every right. hour just to get an update. An update and yeah. I will put him on air 
just to you know to ensure authenticity and to you know to guarantee the the people across the country in Fiji that uh, this is actually coming from the man himself yeah uh, it's coming from the horse's mouth uh, as some would always want to see yeah and, a, a good know, authority I yeah, suppose yeah and for the genre that I was uh, the the station that I that I worked for was an ethok station and the updates are usually being distributed in English and I have to make it my business to to to, to translate it uh, not to change the meaning, but to put it in a manner that people in communities, people as young as 10, 6, 7 years old, understand uh, what's happening, especially during uh, a few hours before a disaster strikes or a tropical cyclone uh, hits uh, Fiji. And Joe, do people contact the station? Like, do they have questions? So they want to tell you what is going on with them, or how does that work? Do you get much interaction? Very much, Fred. Uh, uh, usually, receive calls from uh, people uh, on outer islands in the Lao Group, in the Asawas, Kandabo, Watulele. The some people, uh, some of these uh, people uh, on different islands, they will go to the government station uh, due to limited access to network or mobile phones. They will go to the government station and will convince the government. You mean like the government's building? Or? Yeah, government builds like. For, yep. for example, uh, one island would have a government station where they'll have a, a nurse, a postmaster, even uh, at least two police officers just to serve people on the island. So they will go there. They will use the government landline to, to report to the studio in Suba. And, of course, the reason we're talking about this is because it's World Radio Day on February 13. And the Tonga Broadcasting Commission, Yes, um, we yes. want to talk about them as well because, you know, they were quite important during the 2022 volcanic eruption, um, as I'm sure you can, you can understand as well mm. with your experience. Absolutely. Um, so we, we spoke to them to find out what their experience was during that time and how they managed to stay on air as well. They were tuning to us because we were the only radio that was uh, uh, still operating on that night. I'm Viola Ulakai and uh, I'm the uh, CEO of Tonga Broadcasting Commission. I guess it was such an unprecedented time, like nothing like that had ever happened before, so anything goes almost, doesn't it, at that, at that time? Um, it was totally, you know, it's, it was, for, for us it's new and we were, we, we were shocked at the same time, but um, we've, you know, but we've managed to uh, cope with it because for us, we somehow uh, used to it when there is a tsunami warning and also a cyclone warning. Um, but we tried to figure out how we can um, you know, help the people here. Now they are safe inside the new building while we were working across the road from the old building. And, uh, you know, but I guess at that time we were the most important people at that time because we were broadcasting and, uh, you know, trying to direct the people and uh, uh, put on air uh, the authorities like uh, people from health, the, the, the Honourable Prime Minister, he was trying to encourage, you know, and um, advise the public and uh, also, you know, uh, people from uh, the uh, Met Office because they were the ones who uh, who went on air with all these uh, advisory uh, issues, trying to advise the public, you know, where to uh, evacuate to. Uh, it's like we were uh, trying to um, uh, educate the public 
with all this information and we put on air, you know, uh, people with, uh, from the Ministry of Health, people from uh, uh, NEMO office, uh, like um, the geologists, and uh, also, um, like what I've said before, the Prime Minister, and uh, people from uh, the Met office at Fuamotu, and uh, at the same time from the evacuation center, uh, all these uh, evacuation centers, they were tuning to us because we were the only radio that was um, uh, still operate on that night. So um, it's like we reunited the, the families because there were people uh, uh, calling and said, uh, we have a, a daughter and a son, they went on a picnic to the western side. But uh, up to now, we uh, haven't heard from them. So uh, people from the western side, uh, uh, the uh, headquarters of the Mormon Church, someone called, uh, uh, and we put them on air mm. so that uh, you know others can hear them straight. So they called and say, oh, um, we have a bus um, brought these people from a picnic on the western side. Uh, they are safe and well with us. You know, it was, it was um, uh, a good news mm. to their families. In one evacuation center, uh, a woman called and said, uh, we have with us about uh, uh, three or four uh, children. The, the eldest is about 12 and the youngest is about uh, one year old with no, I know the mother and the father is wow. not around so uh, I was um, I advised them you know, to look after them uh, see if they have clean water and stuff while we tried to contact the police yeah. but then the police at the same time, you know, everyone tuned in to Radio Tonga on that night uh, you know, they 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 go and visit uh, that evacuation center, try to you know figure out uh, who the parents are and see whether you know they need something or help. It's like when we talk on air and when they hear others talking from uh, all these evacuation centers, it's give it gave them uh, courage, and they felt you know as if um, everything is okay, but then it wasn't. And while the world, uh, you know, mourns us, uh, the other, or the following day, you know, we just get up and mm. uh, clean the dust and um, as if there was nothing happened in Tonga. But that's how we felt. Mm. I think we were, you know, we, uh, we are used to it and we... I, the way I look at it, the Tongans, uh, we have the courage, you know, as if we can uh, always face all those, um, you know, the nature. Thanks to Viola Ulakai from the Tonga Broadcasting Commission, explaining how important radio was during the 2022 volcanic eruption. Hey, sir, that's just about it for this episode of Pacific Prepared. Fred, catch you for the next episode. Vinaka. Thanks, Joe. Vinaka, I'll see you soon. I'm just holding on for dear life here. For women, it's always safety first. They are the first responder. You're listening to Pacific Prepared. This show was made on the lands of the peoples of Stony Creek Nation in Luchawita, Tasmania. Also, the people of the Vanua Oviti. 
Pacific Prepared is supported with funding from the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Any views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the Australian Government. It's produced and distributed in partnership with Radio Australia and networks across the Pacific, including Radio New Zealand Pacific, National Broadcasting Corporation of Papua New Guinea, Palau Wave Radio, Fijian Broadcasting Corporation, Samoa National Radio 2AP, Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation and Tonga Broadcasting Commission. My name's Fred Hooper and thanks to my co-host Josina Nunga. Please share any information that you've learned today and stay safe. This has been Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared.